0: What you town after the movie shows A few powerful companies. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown. Welcome to episode number two of Monopolies killed my hometown. I'm Andrew Cameron. Last episode, I talked about why. I think monopolies and corporate consolidation is such a problem for small towns. This episode, I wanna look at our current competition landscape. And then the next episode, I'm going to look back at sort of the history and where we started with our competition policies. So if you've been enjoying the show, please share this with anybody else that you think may learn from this or want to participate in this conversation. So let's get back to our competition landscape today. There's three big things I wanna cover. this episode. It's the Competition Act, which is the law passed by Parliament, the Competition Bureau, which is an independent enforcement agency that investigates and administers the Competition Act, and then the Competition Tribunal, which is an adjudicating body the Competition Bureau can recommend cases to. So in my simplified mind, I think of this like an old Law and Order episode. The first half is the Detectives, the Competition Bureau, The second half is the lawyers and the judges, the competition tribunal. So let's circle back to the actual Competition Act. So again, this is the laws passed by Parliament. Our Competition Act was passed in 1986 while Brian Mulroney was Prime Minister. It's been reviewed a number of times since then. And the last time the Act was reviewed was in 2008, which, as Vass Bednar keeps pointing out, 2008 is the same year the Apple App Store launched. This is a long time ago. Things have changed since then. You know, it's also during the great financial crisis, pre-COVID, like there's a lot that's happened. You'll hear me talk a lot about Vass and what she's contributed and added to the discussion on Canadian competition policy. And her point was just, things are different now than the last time we reviewed it, so we should review and make sure our Competition Act meets the needs for today. Luckily, and I think as part of her pushing for a review amongst many others, there actually is a review of the Competition Act occurring sometime this year. So stay tuned because if we want something different from the Competition Act, this is the time for us to express our desires and what we would like out of this. So I'll put a link to the website and to the Competition Act, but I want to go back to what the current purpose of the Act is. And so quoting from the website, The purpose of this act is to maintain and encourage competition in Canada in order to promote the efficiency and adaptability of the Canadian economy in order to expand opportunities for Canadian participation in world markets, while at the same time recognizing the role of foreign competition in Canada in order to ensure that small and medium-sized enterprises have an equitable opportunity to participate in the Canadian economy and in order to provide consumers with competitive prices and product choices. So that's a mouthful, and there's a lot there. I will leave it to other people to determine if the Competition Bureau is meeting the objectives in this purpose statement. But I kind of want to dig into a couple pieces of this first. Like I said, in the next episode, I'm going to go back to the original purpose of our competition policies. And spoiler alert, this is not the same as our original purpose. So stay tuned. We'll get into that in the next episode. A couple key words in here efficiency is a key and a malleable word in this policy because it can mean almost anything. But my take is when you hear efficiencies, especially when it comes up with mergers, for regular people, efficiencies typically means layoffs, typically means job loss. That's my general rule of thumb. So like I hinted at, this purpose is different than some of her original ones. So it's important to have kind of a context of what else was happening at this time. Uh, Like I said, Mulroney was prime minister in Canada. We had Reagan was president in the U.S. There was a lot of economic changes happening, especially around antitrust and competition policies and how it was enforced. So in this timeframe, most countries around the world, specifically U.S., Canada, and the U.K., started to adopt the consumer welfare standard for evaluating mergers. So it turns out that the actual definition of consumer welfare, the consumer welfare standard is debatable, But my understanding that I got from doing my business degree was that as long as a merger or other business behavior is not expected or predicted to harm consumers by raising prices, then the merger should be allowed or the behavior is acceptable, right? And so this prediction is done by economists for the enforcement agencies. They come in, present with their models saying, if this happens, we don't expect prices to go up because of these efficiencies or these things. but. Under the standard, it doesn't matter if companies attain enough market power to force producers to sell their products for less, or they have enough market power to force workers to take lower wages. And here's an economics term that I've learned that will keep coming up. It's monopsony, which is having market power over suppliers and producers. The other thing that kind of baffles me in all of this, and we'll get to it later, is We also don't go back and check these predictions, right? So if they say, well, we don't expect prices to go up after we let this merger go through, we don't go back five years later and say, hey, did prices go up? And if they did go up, we don't do anything to remedy it. We'll get more into that later. Okay, anyways, so the consumer welfare standard comes from the book, The Antitrust Paradox, written by Robert Bork. And Bork's an American lawyer. You may have heard his name. He was... Nominated in the 80s, he was nominated beyond the Supreme Court, but then was rejected by the Senate. So this is also the point where sort of our Canadian history of competition policy intersects with the American one because we started to adopt a lot of the same ideas. So we're going to talk a lot about this as we move forward. But Bork's consumer welfare standard comes from thinking out of the Chicago School of economics, which included many we'll say quote unquote famous economic and legal scholars and theorists like. Milton Friedman, Aaron Director, George Stiegler, Richard Posner, and others. So I could probably talk for an hour, two hours, probably five hours about basically how I think these guys were wrong on so many analysis. And there's actually enough research out there that some of the underlying assumptions Bork made in his antitrust paradox was just wrong. Like he went back and read some of the original deliberations in Congress to pass the initial American Antitrust Acts and then claimed they meant something different than what they said. So it's debatable that all of this actually lays on an incorrect or shaky foundation. And I am sure we will get into a lot more of this as we move forward. But the point is, this episode is we're looking at where we are now. So in the 1986 Competition Act, there were some significant changes from the previous Combine's Investigation Act. So this description comes from a paper titled The Institutional Design of Canadian Competition Law, the Evolving Role of the Commissioner by Calvin S. Goldman and Naveen Jonja from the law firm Blake Castles and Graydon LLP. So remember the name of this law firm? I think they may just go by Blake's now. They will keep coming up in our discussions about Canadian competition policy. So some of the big changes the new competition policy made were a major break from the earlier competition legislation that was based almost entirely on criminal law enforcement. And while it retained the existing criminal offenses relating to agreements between competitors, price maintenance, and consumer advertising fraud, the 1986 Competition Act substantially overhauled the merger and abuse of dominance provisions, designating them civilly reviewable matters and establishing the competition tribunal to adjudicate such matters. So my understanding of one of the challenges with our previous competition policy was that a lot of the enforcement was done through the criminal court. And once in the criminal court, your burden of proof is rightfully so much higher than in civil court. So a lot of the cases that the Bureau was bringing, they weren't able to ever meet that standard of proof. It was almost impossible in the matters that they were reviewing. And it also appears that the previously the commission and the bureau had investigated powers and were also involved in the adjudication of the cases too. And so parliament and people were concerned about this closeness and decided to create the competition tribunal separate from the competition bureau. Which to me makes a lot of sense. Like I think back to my uh, previous law and order analogy, like... Lenny Briscoe needed different skills than Jack McCoy, and Jack McCoy needed different skills than Lenny Briscoe, and you don't want them doing each other's jobs. So it makes sense to separate out the investigation and the enforcement. That brings us to the Competition Tribunal, which replaced the Restrictive Trade Practices Commission. I don't know much about this commission, but I'm sure I will learn more about it as we move forward. And so the Tribunal consists of six judicial members, with one being designated the chair and up to eight lay persons, who are, quoting from the tribunal's website, appointed by the governor and council on the recommendation of the minister of innovation, science and economic development. They provide expertise based on their individual backgrounds in economics, business, finance, accounting or marketing. Lay members are appointed on a part-time basis. Currently, there are five part-time lay persons on the tribunal. Four are economists, and the other has more than 25 years in the finance industry. With her expertise being in mergers and acquisitions, right? And for me, just looking at the structure of the competition tribunal shows what we value, right? Which is economics and the law. You know, we don't have anybody on the tribunal to look at the impacts of mergers on workers, small towns or small businesses or people in general. So that point of view may not get shared or valued during deliberations at the tribunal level. I also worry that if we need at least four economists and six judges to enforce our laws, that we may have made a mistake and made our laws too complex and complicated, and we need to go back and review if that's what we want. This reminded me of a case competition that I did when I was in university, and so my case competition is not quite as complex as what the competition tribunal would be viewing. But this stuck with me. So my friend and I entered this one, and we went down and stayed at a hotel. And we had all night to prepare a presentation for the next day. And so we got the case and it was about somebody wanted, I think it was one to take like a cows franchise from PEI and take it and open it up in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And so we had all the numbers from that franchise to see if it was worthwhile for them to do this. And so my friend and I, we stayed up late and we built this beautiful financial analysis of what this franchise could do in Thunder Bay based on the PEI numbers we gave her a presentation and it was detailed and it was great. And our recommendation was to go ahead and open up the franchise. The judges liked her presentation. I remember them saying it was one of the best financial presentations they had ever seen. So we sat down feeling very confident and happy with ourselves and thinking we had a good shot to win. Another team got up. Basically, they stood up and went, uh, Thunder Bay is not the same tourist destination as PEI. You can't compare those numbers, so they should not do this. And they sat down, and it was about a five-minute presentation, and I went, oh, right, we missed that. Then I also thought, I bet you they did a whole lot less work than us last night and had more fun. Needless to say, the other team won because they were correct. And myself my friend, we lost sight of that simple fact because of the beauty and the detail and the effort we put into our financial model. So that's very easy to happen when things get complex too. So I'm concerned that maybe this is happening for us at the tribunal level. So back to the tribunal, the competition bureau can recommend or appeal a case to the tribunal if they find enough evidence of a restricted practice or a concern that a merger will lessen competition significantly. The tribunal will investigate, hold hearings, and then they have a variety of options to remediate the situation. All right, and so the last piece out of all of this is the Competition Bureau. So the Bureau is an independent enforcement agency headed by the commissioner, who is currently Matthew Boswell. Matthew Boswell has been with the Bureau since 2012, and before that, he was in private legal practice. In 2019, he was appointed to a five-year term as the commissioner. So the Bureau and the commissioner are responsible for administering the Competition Act. They also will complete any investigations deemed necessary and resolve any complaints through negotiations, dismissal of the complaint, or a recommendation to the competition tribunal for further adjudication. So I really wanna look at what the Bureau is responsible for investigating and enforcing under the Competition Act. The Bureau also administers the Consumer Packaging and Labeling Act, the Textile Labeling Act, and the Precious Metals Marketing Act, but I just wanna look at the Competition Act. So a lot of this information comes from an article that Ian McDonald, wrote on the Gowling WLG law firm page. So the Competition Bureau is really responsible for three main categories, mergers, criminal matters, and reviewable practices. So I wanna start with criminal matters. Under the Competition Act changes from 2009, there's really only two criminal offenses left, conspiracy and bid rigging. So conspiracy is essentially, it's illegal for people to fix, maintain, increase local prices, allocate sales territories or fix control or supply of a production. So that's competitors working together to do this. And big bid rigging is just that. It's working together to rig bids. Maybe I won't bid on this one, you bid on that one. Like So my understanding is if one of these two behaviors is found, that it is forwarded to criminal court for prosecution, not the competition tribunal. Okay, another section the Bureau is responsible for are reviewable practices. So these are competitor agreements. Abuse of dominance, price maintenance, refusal to deal, tied selling, exclusive dealing, vertical market restriction. I'll put links to the definitions of all of these. So these are behaviors we've historically deemed to be anti-competitive and that we want to limit in our economy to ensure fair competition. So out of this list, abuse of dominance is an exception to how they're enforced. (music) For abuse of dominance, you can get a prohibition order and, as McDonald says in his article, potentially significant administrative monetary penalties. For all the other reviewable practices right now, they are presumed to be lawful and a prohibition order is only issued if they're shown to substantially prevent or lessen competition or have an adverse effect on competition. I'm curious to get back and learn where this thinking came from, because to me, when the only penalties for these reviewable practices are an administrative penalty or a prohibition order, we've just basically turned these into a cost of doing business, right? So the maximum administrative penalty under the abuse of dominance is 10 million for an initial transgression and up to 15 for any subsequent transgressions. So if you can use your market power enact in a way to make more than 10 or $15 million, the incentive is for you to do that. And even if you get caught and proven, then you're only paying that much money and you still end up further ahead. Like it, it seems odd to me that this is a choice we went. But then the even weirder one is just the prohibition order. Like I think for like kids, if all that they know you're going to do is tell them not to do something if you catch them doing something bad, there's no consequences. So they got scolded or told not to do it. But if they still got what they want, or still made out for their head, they're going to keep doing it. Like it's a weird rationale. Like it almost feels like we want to appear that we're doing something, but we don't want to actually want to stop these behaviors. Like I don't know. I'd like to see this whole thing changed if we didn't review it. Like actually have consequences for businesses if we don't want people to engage in these behaviors. And the last section that the bureau really looks at are mergers, right? So if mergers are at a certain threshold, which are either based on size of the original parties or the acquiring business size, they must notify the Competition Bureau for the merger. The Bureau has 30 days to review it to determine if there's any substantial impact on competition. And the outcomes of a review can be either that the Bureau is okay with the merger and can proceed on schedule, that they can request longer time to complete their review, They can also make a supplementary information request, which typically happens in cases the bureau is concerned may substantially reduce competition. The Bureau hasn't passed judgment, but this will delay the closing of the merger. The Bureau can challenge it and require concessions from the parties. So a lot of the discussion right now with Rogers wanting to buy Shaw is Rogers being forced to dispose of or sell Freedom Mobile to another party to maintain competition. And the last thing the Bureau can do is challenge the merger transaction before the tribunal. These challenges don't happen that much. I read in the Globe today that Rogers and Shaw were saying that the Bureau actually wants to challenge their merger in front of the tribunal. So I don't know, I would I would be surprised if that actually happened. I'd love to see it happen, but I would be shocked. There are some other things around uh, mergers, like companies can request an advanced ruling certificate from the Bureau, which, basically is like we'll say a pre-approval like a like a pre-approval for a mortgage right that's one thing there's filing fees there's other more specifics but there's a couple things I kind of want to go back to quickly and the first is the threshold sizes for notification right so the two are that if the parties and their affiliates have assets or annual gross revenues above 400 million dollars or the sales or assets of the acquired firm are greater than $93 million. And I find those limits from my point of view, where I am very high because, and they're probably fine for like big companies, like big national companies and their impact across the country. But I think about like Amherst and small towns, those are massive. So we started construction in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia in 2010. And the very first building we had, I could look across the street and see the ready mix plant for Lafarge. Like I could see it there. I could probably yell an order across the street and get it delivered in time. But we actually bought all of our concrete from a company 45 minutes away in concession Nova Scotia because we got better pricing and better service out of them, even with them driving 45 minutes. Then in 2015 and 2016, Lafarge sold their assets or entered into a joint partnership with another Nova Scotia-based ready-mix concrete plant, who then also bought the other company that we were getting our concrete from. So we went from two competitors within 45 minutes down to one. And from then found our prices for concrete went up and service quality wasn't the same. That transaction would not have been anywhere close to the merger guidelines for the Competition Bureau to come look at it, but it had a huge impact on the community of Yarmouth in the area down there. So I don't know how to go about that or what to do about that, but I would love some ways to look at transactions that have outsized impact on smaller towns. And so, The test that the Bureau uses on whether they'll allow a merger or not is whether the transaction would prevent or lessen or be likely to prevent or lessen competition substantially. And so this is the previous consumer welfare standard again, which is to estimate if a company would be able to raise and maintain prices after the merger. And if it's estimated they can, then the merger will probably be challenged. And if it's estimated that they won't, the merger is fine to go through again we don't think about impacts on producers or smaller suppliers or workers or towns or anything like that it's just solely prices to the end consumer but also we can only review these mergers for one year after the fact it used to be three but it got reduced to one in 2009 in the last review which seems really weird everything else with federal government especially with hst income taxes those things are all Reviewable by Canada Revenue Agency for up to seven years. So I don't know why this is down to one. It also seems to me that if we're basing decisions on allowing mergers on whether prices will go up or not in the future, but we're only allowed to look at it for one year, we're basically saying, as long as you're not going to raise prices within one year, this merger is fine. Like it seems like a really weird uh, accountability measure for something as important as this. Like I was thinking the other day, it's like such a weird thing. Like my daughter's eight. And so I was thinking, okay, when she's a teenager, she comes to me and says, I want to go to a concert on Friday night. And I say, okay, that's great. I'll let you go to the concert as long as you keep your bedroom clean for the rest of the month. And if you don't for the rest of that month, you're going to owe me a hundred dollars. And she agrees to it. And then I say, but you know what? The thing is, I'm only going to check your bedroom for the next week. Those last three weeks, I'm just going to assume that it's fine and assume you're going to do it. There's no accountability for her. It's just, You know, she'll probably keep her room clean for that week, do whatever for the next three, and then expect me to give her the hundred bucks back at the end of the month. Like this just seems like a really weird accountability and enforcement process if we want to hold the emerging parties accountable. I'd love to hear more about where this thinking and where this thought process came from. So please share. Let me know what you've experienced or what you're thinking or what you know of where this came from. And I'm sure I'm going to come across more of this as I go back to more documents from, you know, the late 70s and mid 80s. But I'd still love for these things to be reviewed and thought about when we do our review of the whole act. Like, if we don't want these things to happen, are our accountability measures and processes in line with actually stopping them? Because... If they're not, it's almost like we want to say we're against these behaviors and these things happening, but we're actually very permissive in letting them happen. Like, it seems like a bit of a dichotomy that I'd love to see straightened out in this review. So once again, thank you for joining me on this episode of Monopolies Killed My Hometown. If you've enjoyed this, please share it with friends, family, anybody else who may like it, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And please check back for the next episode, looking at where we started. What do you do in a small town after the movie shows? A few powerful companies. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown.